So I'm going to pray for Palo Alto Vineyard, but we actually have this morning the opportunity to hear from their lead pastor as well. So Susan Van Riesen is going to be preaching this morning. They don't clap like that when I preach. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, Susan and her husband Alex worked with InterVarsity for a long time, um, and then she's been the lead pastor at Palo Vineyard for the last five years. And Susan and I together lead the kind of area network of local pastors. So that's been a really fun thing for her and I to work on together. And I really am grateful for her friendship and partnership in that. She's married to Alex and has three kids, two of whom were adopted. And she'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But join me as I pray for her and pray for their church. Father, we're grateful for the body of Christ. Grateful that you call and equip and gather different communities of people together to serve you in the fullness of ways that a particular area needs. We are grateful for our friendship and partnership with Palo Alto Vineyard Church, what we can learn from them and how we've partnered with them and throughout the years. We pray for their partnership with Buena Vista Mobile Home Park, that you would um, bless that and then you would use that to bless the community. And we pray for just their ministry as they prepare to kick off for the fall and as, as they look to be following you in all that they do. We just ask that you would bless them. We ask that your spirit would be on them, that they would discern your will and have the courage to follow. Father, as Susan preaches this morning, would you open our hearts? Would you allow us to hear from her and bless us? through her with your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Susan. Thanks. Good morning, church. So great to be here today with you. And I come bearing greetings and thanks from my church, the Palo Alto Vineyard Church. We were so blessed to get to worship in your parking lot under the tent um, for, uh, gosh, maybe eight months uh, during in the last two years during the pandemic. So that was such a blessing to us. So thank you. And just thank you for being a, a supportive, faithful church in Palo Alto. It's, it's great to hear what God's been doing in your midst. So this morning, I'm going to speak on the topic of marriage, God's purpose for marriage. And I did ask the Lord what he wanted me to come and bring to your church. Also, this is a part of a sermon series that we are doing at our church called uh, Spirituality and Sexuality. So we're talking about marriage and divorce and singleness and just what is sex and just all sorts of things. So um, if you want to additionally check that out, you're welcome to do that online. And um, I want to begin by acknowledging that not everyone here in this room or who's watching online are married, and that is a good thing. I hope that every healthy church would have a combination of people who are working out their discipleship in marriage, but also people who are not, because as singleness is highly elevated and honored in the Bible. But whether you're married or not, whether you're single or have formerly been married or whatever, I hope that talking about what the Bible says about marriage in this particular passage would be a blessing to you. And I'll talk more about how I, what I hope for that. 
Let me begin by sharing some quotes from us that will hopefully illustrate to you about there's a lot of humor, but a lot of cynicism out there about marriage. So comedian Rita Rudner says, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person that you want to annoy for the rest of your life. Apparently, scientist Albert Einstein said, men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. And then playwright Neil Simon said, take care of him, make him feel important. And if you can do that, you'll have a happy and wonderful marriage, like two out of every 10 couples. Ooh. Can you hear the cynicism in these quotes? I think there's a lot of cynicism out there and possibly a lot of reason for cynicism out there. Yes, people are into falling in love, right? People are into getting married and having weddings. Just did a wedding two weeks ago and it was lovely and flowers and matching cupcakes and it was just like, oh, so warm and exciting. But staying married for life That's a whole different thing. I think there's a deep cynicism in our culture about staying married for life. The idea of that. But I suggest to you that as Christ followers, we are heirs of a beautiful vision of marriage and relationships that are filled with such hope that our culture would be blessed to see it, to truly experience it. Honey, could you get me my water? (laughs) This is my lovely assistant, Alex, (laughs) my husband. (laughs) Good job. All right. Uh, Christian marriage is a reenactment of the story of grace. I suggest to you that Christian marriage is a reenactment of the story of grace. I'm going to jump into this passage uh, for today. And uh, as I do that, I want to acknowledge that before the first service, I realized that um, I was on sabbatical this spring or this, this January through April. And on my sabbatical, I went to different local churches where I have relationship. And uh, one day... I came to this church, and I realized this morning that this was the very passage that Pastor Paul spoke on. So some of you may remember that, but I figure I don't always remember every sermon I've heard, and sometimes you weren't there. So I hope you're still blessed, but you will remember that as I uh, read the scripture. So I'm going to jump into this passage. After I read it, I will have a question for you. This is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, um, and to present to her 
present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, my question to you is, how did you feel when I read that scripture? How did you feel? Now, uh, our understanding of scripture doesn't always come from or is connected to how we feel about uh, scripture, but I'm still going to ask you that question. How'd you feel? Some of you probably felt like, yeah, I've read that before. You know, I've, I've read it multiple times and heard sermons on it. It's Ephesians 5. Some of you may feel like, honestly, it made me a little uncomfortable and kind of made me in my body, and I felt like I wanted to throw up a little bit in my mouth. (laughs) Some of us think of stories of women who are wonderful and gifted and maybe have been squashed by their family or their community um, using passages like this. Uh, Some of us know of Christian men who have used this passage as a power play over their wives. And there may be people in this room or who are watching online who have uh, been wounded by passages like this. And the first thing I want to say is that I get that. I understand. When I was first seriously following Jesus, which was in college, I remember encountering this passage thinking, I'm going to turn the page really fast, and I hope I never have to lead a Bible study on this passage. It's just one of those passages that it's easy to avoid. But I hope that when you encounter this text, that you are rightfully puzzled. I hope that you are authentically intrigued. I hope your first response is, I know that this scripture, as with all scripture, has a message for me. So I'm going to ask some questions. Let me dig a little deeper. Let me, uh, if you were to encounter at a different time, let me find a time with my small group leader to say, what do you think about this? Let's ask questions because this is what the scripture, all of scripture, invites us into. If you are someone who's reading scripture and you're like, yes, it all just so, it flows so nicely, it all makes sense automatically, and there's not a trouble in the whole thing, then you're not really paying attention to the scripture. Because the scripture should make you go, ooh, what? Huh? Because there's all sorts of things in the scripture that's not meant to alienate you, but it's meant to make you curious and uh, endeavor to seek more. That is a healthy relationship with scripture. And we should also know that scripture is written for us, but not originally to us. Just wondering if anyone who here is uh, someone who lives in first century Ephesus. Anyone? Okay, probably not. 
most of us are Americans or we're living or residing in, in the U.S. right now at this particular time. And it is helpful and humble for us as we approach the word of God to recognize and acknowledge that we are coming from a certain lens as well. So as we always do with scripture, we should ask, well, what was the context? Who are the people that this was written to? What was their setting? And what would these words have meant first to them and then to me? And when we ask these questions, scripture completely changes. What we find is that in first century Roman culture, it was a very deeply patriarchal, deeply oppressive environment for women. So what Paul is doing in the larger context of Ephesians here is actually a very life-giving, empowering word, especially to women. Intrigued? All right, keep listening. First, go with me to the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which say, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, by word repetition, what would you say is one of the main themes of these two verses? Any ideas? Yes, love. So three times we get this phrase, beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us. Now, one hurdle for us to understand the meaning, the true meaning of this passage here, is the fuzziness of the English word love. In English and in our current culture, the word love can mean a huge array of things, right? You can say, I love boba tea, I love donuts after church, I love riding my bike with the wind in my hair. Although, hopefully not, because you're wearing a helmet, like we're exhorting my children to do these days. But the word love can mean all sorts of things, often having to do with warm fuzzies. Uh, But to the biblical authors, the word love is not primarily a feeling, but something that you do. It is an action word. It is a commitment. In fact, I would define love in Ephesians as this. Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. Love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. So if I were to quickly paraphrase this verse using that definition, you might say God is so committed to the God is committed to the well-being of creation and Jesus was committed to the well-being of a broken world so that others may live. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you will live with that kind of story as well and you will be committed to one another's well being. That puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? A a different weight on love. So in verse 21, Paul says this again, but he doesn't say love one another. He says submit to one another. Now, just a little vote here. When I say the word submit, how many of you have just really positive emotions? Anyone? Modern day Americans? Okay, how many of you have more negative emotions about the word submit? Yeah, and that might have something to do with uh, our current culture and context, right? We are tempted to 
more likely to you think of the word submit as having to do with passivity or um, losing your freedom or being dominated by someone else or lo- the loss of dignity, right? Those are our associations. But I, I tell you that this is not at all what Paul is getting at here. For submission is the flip side of love. Submission is simply the flip side of love. If love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another, then submission would be to prioritize the interests and well-being of another above your own. So put yourself below another person and prioritize the well-being of another above your own. So as believers, we are to be so rooted in the love, not just warm fuzzies, right? The love of God unto the greatest sacrifice ever to send a holy God on the cross for the sake of all of our lives. We are to be so rooted in this love that we then have the freedom and the call to prioritize the interests of others above our own. This is what it means to love and to submit. And who is Paul calling to do this? When he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love. Is he just saying this to children? Like literal children who used to be sitting here? No. Is he just saying to the extroverts? Is he just saying this to the men? No, he's saying this to everyone, right? This is before he's gone and talking, talking about wives and husbands, etc. This is for the whole community. Does this include wives? Yes. Does this include husbands? Yes. Include men, women, older people, younger people, children, everyone who is following Jesus. I tell you that mutual submission was unknown to the Greco-Roman world. But what Paul has done changes it in such a subversive way. He says, submit to one another. So everyone is submitting to each other. (laughs) And this becomes the rule of life for followers of Jesus. But it does get more complicated in verse 22 where it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. What is going on here? Let me begin by saying, uh, emphasizing to you that the hierarchy of authority in first century Roman culture, which is, Uh, very prevalent in this multi-ethnic town city of Ephesus. It's highly structured and top-down. So at the very top, you would have the emperor, the Caesar, who is known as the son of God. Um, And they believe that this person had a connection with deity. And what they say goes, their words are life and death. So they have ultimate and complete societal power. Then, below them, you have the ruling elite. So that would be the top 3 or 4% of society who owned land, who owned 
uh, industry and businesses who really owned much of society. Those folks had secondary power after that. Then for the rest of the 96% of society, those were multi-generational households ruled by the male patriarchs. So you'd get a a number of households connected in some way, and uh, the patriarch would have absolute authority over that grouping. And then after that would be women, after that children and slaves. And for first uh, century Roman culture, it was built on a very, very rigid social hierarchy of power and authority. You don't break that. You don't go, oh, you know what? We're just going to live like this. We're going to try this whole other thing. Or how about I make decisions for myself? I'm my own special person. No, that it was a very rigid society. And this is how uh, people would make families. In that society, a Roman man would go and acquire a wife. Um, A typical marriageable age for a Roman man would be somewhere in their early to mid-30s. And uh, the average age of a Roman woman to be married is somewhere between 14 and 15. That's uh, somewhere between illegal and creepy in our culture, but that is how it worked. And just to be humble, I think there are probably things that people in their society, if they came to our society, would go, whoa, really? You guys do that? So, you know, there are, every society has their own thing. So into this burst, into that hierarch, extremely hierarchical movement, bursts, uh, hierarchical culture, bursts a movement. This crazy, weird movement of people, sometimes ca- called followers of the way or uh, followers of the Nazarene, who tell a story about a one true God who's making a a way to redeem all of creation. He's making a new family, and this new family doesn't do things according to the Roman social ladder. The organizing principle for this new family is unity. Unity. Galatians 3, verses 26 through 28 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All, and all of you were united with Christ in baptism and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This crazy, different way of understanding people. So much of the way they lived in Roman society gets completely dismantled by the followers of Jesus Christ. His gospel, which is a message that says that every single person has inestimable worth. That every single person has inestimable, unfathomable worth. Because we each are creations of God, expressing the image of God and bought by God by his death on the cross and made children of God. So into this, if you say to an average uh, Roman husband, hey, 
Love your wife uh, in the way of Jesus. Submit to your wife. That would just be crazy. You're an average Roman male. You've taken a 14, 15-year-old girl into your home. And Paul says to you, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The head of the household would be like, what? He would be a laughingstock among all of his friends if he did this. This would be a whole different way of living reality. Or if you're an average Roman wife, generally, you're just like, of course, I live under the power of my husband. I just do what, I, what he tells me to do if I want to live. Uh, he's more like a master than a friend. And he's a like, couple decades older than me. But Paul says to her, submit to your husband. How? Why? As you do to the Lord. Not out of fear. Not out of social hierarchy. Not out of just survival. But as you do to the Lord. How and why do believers submit to the Lord? With gladness and safety and confidence that you're going to be totally loved by the the greatest lover of all that's ever been on earth. With trust in God. As you do to the Lord. So again, because you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're called to this radical new way of living, which is centered on love, and submitting to one another. And there's a feel to that. When you interact in a church and you go, these are people who love and submit to one another. They're tied to one another in love and submission. They care about and weigh heavily and even put their own agendas down for the sake of another. You can sense that. There's a witness to that. And I have to say that as I've been around this church, I feel that. There is a a rooting, a blossoming. And is it perfect? No. But there is a feel of love and submitting to one another in the DNA of this church. And we see it, we smell it, we feel it. It's a witness. Remember this, uh, that If you are a follower of Jesus, love is a commitment to act for the well-being of another. And submit is to prioritize the interests of another above your own. I know this is happening in this church. I think you can feel it and smell it and see it too. And that is the aroma of God. That is the love of God. And remember, uh, this verse one, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Remember, this is a verse to everyone. The whole community is called to this. But also, and especially in marriage. Marriage is a great illustration or an example. A, not the only illustration or example of this. The purpose of Christian marriage is to teach us to love like Jesus. It is a special and unique way to teach us to love like Jesus. And it is not natural for anyone. Love is not natural for, even, for anyone, even with your spouse. Lust is natural. Romance is sometimes natural. 
hate and bitterness, we can slide into with no effort at all. Amen? Journalist Catherine Ann Porter said, love must be learned again and again. Hate needs no instruction, but waits only to be provoked. Mm. What is love? Love is self-sacrifice. Love is putting someone else's needs first. Anyone here feel like, oh, that's so easy for me. I just naturally, automatically put other people's needs before my own. That's not me. You know, it's easy to think of, like, maybe from a movie, like, yeah, love. That was just like, you know, John Woo, I'm going to take a bullet for someone else, and I'm going to, you know, like, it'll be dramatic. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes in marriage, it's not like you're taking a bullet for your spouse. It's not like you're offering a kidney for your spouse. Sometimes, I guess that could happen, you know, and that's great. But usually, it's not those big, dramatic acts of love. It's not like all your blood or your kidney. It's more like a prick of blood, a drop of blood every day, many times a day. Just a little prick of blood, but it's just constant. Drip, 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 drip. And usually, it's not a billion dollars that you're going to give at one time to your spouse, but it's like a quarter every day, many times a day. Here's a nickel. Here's a dime every day just for the rest of my life. And that, I think, is harder or is more shaping or aligned with discipleship. What is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think neighbor is like love, where you go, yeah, neighbor, I know what that means. But neighbor means someone who lives right next to you, right? Who is a better neighbor than your housemate or your spouse, right? Because they see you all the time. You are truly authentic with that, that your spouse, and you could apply this to housemate too, if you're living with housemates or just anyone you live with, right? It, you know, if you're a single person and you had a bad day, if you want to, you can go home and watch, do the Netflix binge thing and big carton of ice cream, be a slob, throw your stuff on the floor. You can do that, but it's a lot less likely when you're married and you have a spouse because they're watching you all the time and they're not invisible like God is. My husband and I like to we say like, oh man, you're still here. You're watching me. It's like the eye of Sauron. For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fans, it's like this big eye that's like always watching you, right? And it's like, oh, you saw me not do the dishes. You asked me to do it the way you asked me to do it again. Your neighbor as yourself. I think a lot of people go into marriage thinking, I got this. I'm a generally loving person. Yeah, I mean, there might be some adjustments I might need to make for marriage, but it'll be fine. And many of us were in for a rude awakening because Christian marriage reveals to us our pettiness. Amen? Our insecurities, our small hearts, our weaknesses in loving, our 
resentment, and unwillingness to forgive. In his, in his book, Sacred Marriage, Gary Thomas says, what if God designed marriage to make us more holy than happy? What if God designed marriage to make us more holy than happy? Most of the world thinks like, oh, I really want this person to be happy, so I hope they, you know, like, get married. People think that marriage is for happiness, and there's happy moments, sure, that's great. But that's not the core. The core is that this is God's gym. This is the place where we get to work out in a certain way to make us shaped as holy disciples of Jesus. It is a pointer to Christ and the church, to the complete faithfulness of God's love, his devotion, his kindness, his patience. You guys have been studying this, right? The fruits of the spirit. The world needs a pointer to God's love, and that is certainly the church but also Christian marriage is meant to be a pointer to God's love. And I I do want to say that um, we also need God's wisdom to know how to love, right? So I don't want you to think, oh, whatever feels loving or just lose my brain and just submit. Do whatever the person tells me to do or give give my spouse whatever they want. Is that love? Not always. You know, when uh, we're two broken people working it out. So we need wisdom from God, from community, from trusted leaders, especially when there's abuse or addiction. It is not, not always loving to give the, uh, the person what they are asking for because that might not be love. So we need wisdom to know how to love. But the foundational exhortation of this morning is we are to love within marriage, and uh, that love is to spill over within community. Like I said, the vision of the church is married couples and, very crucially, not married people so that we can have a holistic testimony. And uh, gosh, there's so much to say about the honor and the relevance and the importance of singleness, but I don't have time. Uh, I also recognize that there are other things in this passage, like the word head and some other things I don't have time for, but you can ask me or you can ask Paul. (laughs) He's had a lot of thoughts on it. I was asking the Lord um, if there's a certain way that the Holy Spirit was going to minister to you guys. And I felt like, as with the first service, I felt like God was saying, he wants to cleanse you from cynicism. Like I felt like God was saying, just pray for them that they would be cleansed from cynicism. And like I said, Lots of reasons to be cynical. How marriage is in this world, our own hearts, our own experiences. Maybe we come from families where the marriage uh, was not great or hurtful. But I want to pray for you that you would be free from cynicism and then also free to love. So let's just go before the Lord right now together. Lord Jesus, Actually, if, um, would, would you all just uh, make eye contact with God, close your eyes and just sit before the Lord. And 
I want to ask you and invite you, if you know that you have cynicism in your heart, if you realize, yeah, I have that and it's kind of a buildup, I want to invite you to stand where you are right now. And just all of us with our eyes closed, if you know I need especially to be free from cynicism, just would you stand where you're, where you're seated right now? Just as an expression and prayer to God. We're just going to wait on the Lord for just a minute. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who or especially know that they want to be free from a cynical spirit about marriage. There are those who've been hurt by bad reflections within marriage or just for whatever reason. I just pray now by the Holy Spirit that you would cleanse like a trip to the dentist. Just pick out the tartar of a residue, a buildup of cynicism. And I just pray for freedom for that, for my brothers and sisters, God. Like, let, let the enemy not use that to, to keep us away from hope and love. Thank you, Lord. Just now put a blessing of willingness to see marriage as your good creation upon these brothers and sisters, I pray, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You can have a seat. And I just pray for all of you. Would you open your hands as a, as a physical prayer? I pray a blessing of love upon these brothers and sisters here who are online watching this or in this room. Help us to love like you love. Help us to love a quarter at a time. One prick of blood at a time. Gladly shaped by you. Oh, how, to, how beautiful it is to love like you. Jesus, lover of our souls. Shape us, Lord, to be like that, please. Do that today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.